to Graphic Policy Radio, the comics podcast for geeks who wonder if Trump's illegal war on Syria is actually a renumbering of all the other illegal wars the U.S. government has been waging, just with a different and dumber editor-in-chief. Tonight we'll be discussing DC Comics series Deathstroke. Slade Wilson, a.k.a. Deathstroke, may be the worst dad in the DCU, but the solo series he stars in is one of the most critically acclaimed current comic series. It's by legendary Black Panther writer Christopher Priest and a murderer's row of artists like Larry Hama, Carlo Pagulian, uh, Kerry Nord, Diogenes Nieves, and Bill Sienkiewicz. Deathstroke is full of geopolitics, dual sword-wielding violence, poor sexual decisions, Byzantine plots, and Episcopalian philosophy. So join us for a deep dive into the current series with our esteemed guests. Hub is the writer producer, and co-host of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that covers two entirely unrelated Bronze Age series, the New Teen Titans and the Defenders. It is the podcast that offers plausible alternative histories for what the fuck Dr. Strange's manservant Wong was doing off-panel, if only the comic wasn't too racist to show it in the first place. (laughs) Um, Aloha. Hi. uh, Thank you so much for having me. Great. Uh, I, I adore the podcast, so... Uh-huh. And um, you Jeez. obviously have the, the Bronze Age chops uh, that offer some of the background to be discussing the, the series today. Oh, thank you. Um, and Leslie Lee, the third, is a writer and host of the podcast Struggle Session, a podcast that takes a leftist look at the reactionary wasteland of American politics. Um, is Struggle Session the podcast covers a range of popular culture and news and recently observed that Warhawks in the media seem like they're pretending to be characters from The Wire, which is a very timely observation, so I would say. Hello, Leslie. Hello, thank you for having me. I just want to say off the start, um, Slade did nothing wrong. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I also enjoyed your Black Panther episode, I should add, as well, speaking of people who did nothing wrong. And also doing nothing wrong is our final guest, friend of the show, Spencer Ackerman. Is an aspiring comic and senior now, senior now, senior now, senior now for the Daily Beast. As the U.S. national security editor for The Guardian, Ackerman was part of the Pulitzer Prize winning team reporting on Edward Snowden's NSA revelations. And as a senior writer for Wired, he won a National Magazine Award for reporting on Islamophobic counterterrorism training at the FBI. Hi, Spencer. Hi, Alana. And none of that was as impressive as your renumbered Illegal Wars intro to this episode. Thank you. <laughs> I uh, I wrote it when I thought you might be have to bail on us due to any of the yeah. war in Syria. So um, thanks, you guys. So a little bit about the structure for our listeners. We're going to kick off by talking sort of generally about why we like the series so much. Probably the next like eight or eight or so minutes we'll talk about that, and that will be spoiler free. That's just going to be to get you excited about reading the book. And then after that, we're going to talk all the spoilers in the world. Um, up until the most recent issue, which is issue 30, which just came out today, and we will finish the podcast discussing issue 30. That way folks who haven't had a chance to get to their local comic store yet uh, will be able to listen to the vast majority of the show without worrying about spoilers. Um, so let's have it. Um, you know, I I came to this series in the first place because everyone always talks about how amazing Christopher Priest is as a writer, and I've always been a sucker for villain books. Um, but I only like villain books when you're not, I suppose the term is rubifying, 
the villain. Um, it's actually less, you know, it's not so much that I like villain books. It's that I like D-list character books, like Secret Six, where you get to have a lot of freedom to write about whatever you want. Um, so I guess for me, the interweeding this in the first place was you have a writer that everyone says is brilliant. Um, he has a character that kind of never really quite caught with the general public, so I figured there'd be a lot of freedom to explore. And that's how, that's how I ended up picking it up, and um, it, it's been really just one of those addictive series. Uh, I would say, like, I know a number of you all are probably longstanding Christopher Priest fans, but Leslie, how did you end up getting into the series? Well, it's a similar thing, because I remember uh, Priest from back in the day. Um, uh, Wizard was always raving about how his Black Panther was the best book on the market. They did this for years. And I, I like that you called him a legendary writer at the top, because that's true in a lot of, in like, the you know, the hyperbolic sense where we say, you know, a really great writer is legendary. He's also legendary because he's like a mythical legend, because he disappeared from writing comic books for 10 years. Um which is just mind-boggling. He's he was one of the best writers at the time when he left. He's came back and immediately is, is producing what is generally considered the best superhero book uh, on the planet, at least as far as DC goes. But for ten years he wasn't writing anything. This is a guy who's full of ideas, full of talent, full of creativity, who's nevertheless kind of pushed out of the industry by all the stuff he had to deal with as a black writer uh, who, who who didn't want to be known as the black writer. And he, he, he Priest actually tells a story of like, he, he was still contacted by DC and Marvel. He says like, you know, every nine months, one of them will call me up with an idea. And my first question was always, is the black character? And every time it was, the answer was yes. And he would turn it down because he has other things going on, and he, if he's going to be a writer, he wants to. It's clear that he wants to be the best writer. And I'm just happy that now, with Deathstroke, and now he's writing Justice League, um, he has the opportunity to be just not just the best black writer, but the considered the best writer in the industry. Yeah, yeah, and I really do think this is a. A number of our listeners have said this is the best comic DC is putting out. Period. Hub, how did you come in on the series? Um. Again, I came in as a fan of Christopher Priest. I never had really connected with the character Deathstroke that much, but I heard that there was a new series that Priest was writing, and I wanted to check it out. And I also like villain books, like you were saying. And I think part of what works best about them and what made me specifically intrigued about Priest writing one is one of the things that he does really well that I always loved in his old Black Panther series is create a view of the character based on how others interact with him. So it kind of builds the legend of a character. You don't have to identify with the character. You get to learn about the character through the ancillary characters that he surrounds himself with. In the Black Panther series, it was a character named Everett Ross. Uh, but in this, it's you see more of Deathstroke through Wintergreen or through Rose or through Icon. Um, it makes sense because if there's anything about it that you kind of don't want to internalize about the character, if you want to keep reading, you can just play it off as, oh, well, that's just how that person sees him. Uh, it, it keeps the identity of the character kind of intentionally nebulous. And part of why that works really well for a villain book is when you spend enough time with a character, you start to identify with him, whether you like him or not. And I think it keeps you from doing that. 
Thank you. I needed someone to put that analysis together because I'm, I'm, like, I'm literally saying I, I hate when superhero books center a villain in ways that essentially make them the hero. It's happened so many times, and it's been to the detriment, I think, of a lot of interesting potential stories and just intellectually lazy, and this was a really cool way around it. Um, Spencer, how did you come in on this? So in the same boat as, as everyone else here, uh, it's Christopher Priest. He hasn't written anything in forever. I don't think I've ever – I don't think I was collecting comics when Priest's Black Panther came out. So, like, I read that all in trade later um, when I came back to comics. And, like, there was just nothing else that he was, you know, contemporaneously doing, really. And then um, I'm assuming, like you all, uh, a massive Titans fan. I have given the character of Slade Wilson so many chances I read the new 52 Rob Liefeld Deathstroke. Like I really tried with it. <laughs> oh. And, and, and he, he really does not reward you. Honestly, even that, um, that gorgeous, uh, Marv Wolfman, Mike Zeck Deathstroke, it looks beautiful, but man, that is a, that is not either of their finest work. But, um, I, I also came into the book relatively late. I came in with a defiant storyline because I was kind of not, really sure I was ready to trust uh, DC Rebirth and mm-hmm. quickly saw that it's, you know, Priest has such like an amazing depth of insight as a writer, both to character, to circumstance and to pacing. And Priest quickly realized when looking at the character throughout, you know, his 30 odd year history, Deathstroke is a family book at heart. Priest understood that the, the tether between Deathstroke and the Titans, which on the surface of it, you know, makes no sense and is one of those, you know, absurd um, artifices of the genre where you can't actually ever end a story or substantially change the status quo relationship between major characters. You can only kind of ebb and flow it over time before resetting. But back from the start of Deathstroke, the tether is that Deathstroke has lost his son and he blames the Titans. And the Titans kind of see him as this, you know, dark stand-in for a father figure. Um, and, and many of them have very, you know, difficult, complicated relationships with that. And then Priest asks, well, if Deathstroke is fundamentally a family book, what kind of family would a man like this have? And then he delves so far deep into the answers for every single one of those characters and relationships that it just, it's an irresistible book. And it's, um, I know I'm sort of supposed to say, given from my background, that like I come to Deathstroke as well for you know what it sort of says about perpetual warfare um, and about um, the corruptions of coming to love killing and so forth. I kind of don't like it's it's good that the series deals with that, but you know Priest, who's also effortless at writing extremely complex geopolitics um, and using them to reveal characters as well as to make real and very impactful arguments about the world and how it operates doesn't have that overshadow the book. And that's the mark of a master writer. Yeah, that's all really true. I, you know, I, I actually am not a longstanding Titans fan. I uh, got reading it because I borrowed Spencer's copies of things. And um, I, I feel like one of the most astute observations I'd read about the character Deathstroke this, um, from fellow critic and friend of the show, Eric Cleefield, who described Deathstroke as being the Captain America of the Vietnam War. And that was just one of those observations that made my jaw drop. And um, 
I, you know, obviously because of the shifting timeline of the story, you know, they sort of situate Deathstroke in the current series as being, you know, he's not a baby boomer. The wars he was fighting, he was fighting in, it seems like it was maybe Kosovo. It, it, it's hard to quite put a finger on it, correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea that he is the Captain America of a fundamentally flawed war is exactly what I think they were going after with this. He's, you know, he has this, he basically has Captain America's powers. He basically got the powers in a similar way, um, and he is using them for completely different purposes and is not about patriotism at all. He's about, in, in, he's about supporting himself um, and his own survival. Uh, so, you know, I, I was just funny because I, I, before, the, before they started to turn Deathstroke over to Christopher Priest, there was like a piece over at CBR or something that was like, quit trying to make Deathstroke happen. Is, you know, DC had been trying to make this a character that folks were excited about for a while and never really picked up. And this shows you that any character can be great in great hands. Um, but, I, I, but I still just can't get over that description of him um, and, and, and how he's sort of a dark mirror of Captain America. I, I don't know how much of a factor that, that is in, in the current, you know, politics of the series, but it's very true in his origins. Yeah, I, I, I've always liked the character of Deathstroke, like, aesthetically. Like, he's just a cool-looking guy, and he beats mm-hmm. up, you know, snotty teenagers. I've always <laughs> enjoyed that. But what Christopher Priest does and what he did with Black Panther is he takes someone with a cool aesthetic who's been misused and misplaced um, over the years and really, like, delves into who this character really should be and what really makes him tick. And uh, what what he figures out with uh, Deathstroke, I think, is that like there's this line in the book where Pete, where he's meet, he's talking to the superhero, and she's like, "You're a villain, you're bad," and he's like, "What are you talking about? Shut up! You sound completely naive. There's no such thing as a heroes or a villain. There's just people who uh, make change in the world and people who watch TV." And I feel like that's kind of the key element of why. Deathstroke, he's doing what he does because he doesn't know how to do anything else but kill people, and so that's how he's going to make his change in the world. How he's going to live his free life, killing people for money. He does uh, well. In, 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 as the century, uh, as the book moves along, he kind of rethinks this ethic, this uh, uh, unmorality. But when you meet him originally, like there's no moralizing about him. He doesn't really think that like. And all, a lot of villain books try to make the villains like uh, opine about like mm-hmm. morality in a way, and they have their own kind of twisted morality. But like Deathstroke isn't really that character, and Priest really understands that. Yeah, I think part of what really worked for me as the book is when I liked it best was when it was almost like a heist book. Like it reminded me of reading like Richard Stark's um, Parker novels where you have the sociopath who is totally not even immoral, but just like not concerned with morals. Just like, okay, yeah, put those in that pile over there. I have something that I need to do, so I'm going to accomplish it. And one of the things that Priest does really well is anytime you start to care about the character, he reminds you that, no, he's awful. (laughs) Like the the most jarring thing that happened is just like you start to come around, oh, he's developing this sweet relationship with Power Girl, (laughs) and I like how this is going, and oh, he's basically a superhero at this point, and then he kills a dog. Yeah, yeah. 
and I almost stopped reading the book at that point. Like, not because I thought it was bad, but just because I was like, oh, shit, I don't want to spend any more time with this dude. Uh, I'm so but glad they did that, enough interesting things are happening that it keeps you involved in it, but also does keep you at arm's distance from really going all in with this guy. So, yeah, we've officially entered the spoiler section, duh. But, um, but yeah, I, 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 was, I felt like this was one of the, the few truly earned animal killings for emotional effects in a story because it really did serve its purpose so well. And I'm like, oh, that's so awful, but, boy, did that make sense and was it necessary. And he's teaching in that moment, he's teaching Tanya that lesson, and he's also teaching us, the reader, that reminder that, no, he's not here to make us feel good and to have this, like, big moral turnaround where everything's okay and redeemable. I mean, look, this is a guy who, this is jumping, this is uncovered much later in the series, who, you know, in his origin story, the pre-rebirth, et cetera, like, one of the main things his character does is he rapes a tween. And then comics went on before Rebirth acting like he could be this, like, gray anti-hero. But no, he, he rapes a tween, you know? Yeah. <laughs> That's not something you come back from. And Christopher Priest understands, like, I mean, the, the, the comic goes all into a whole thing around redemption and religion later on. But, like, he's also like, going to be there to be like, uh, no, you, I know you're going to be charmed by this competence porn. Right, there's a certain amount of competence <laughs> porn as yeah. a kind of super effective villain, but like you were, no, you are not going to be charmed by this. He is not. A, it's not okay. Let's go kill a puppy. <laughs> could, could I respond to the Captain America point? Please. I think in a fundamental way that's wrong. Um, mm. I, and I see where it's coming from, and the critique that it that it that wants to make basically. But the cat metaphor breaks down because, like, it's not America that makes Slade Deathstroke. And that's the only way you could have that critique really apply, is if, like, Slade was fighting America's wars and because of it becomes so broken and so immoral and so in love with killing that he's the monster that American um, militarism and imperialism ultimately makes right but like that's that's like the punisher for and you know particularly under mm-hmm. grant ennis and like that's mm-hmm. a really salient and important aspect of that character and it's also you know the comedian in watchman which is basically like what if we made captain america the joker um <laughs> you know particularly because the comedian you know starts off as this you know really violent vigilante and then finds like wow, he's really useful as a government assassin and the government will just let him kill and let him be this, this psychopath that he wants to be. But the trouble is that's not Slade Wilson. Slade, as you know, everyone else has said, and particularly in Christopher Priest's hands, is so clear-eyed about how amoral he is. Hello? He's, he's pat... Hello? Hello? I, I, still, I can I hear, still everyone. hear everyone. <laughs> Hello? Hello? Hi. Uh-oh. I still hear everyone. Yeah, yeah, he's in the, he's in, he's here, but he's not, he is not audible. Hello? Can you guys, can you guys not hear me? I I can hear everyone. Now we're all back. We lost you for a minute. You're talking about how Slade is not Captain America. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Um, Well, I apologize if this, um, 
either repeats itself or doesn't quite add up because of the drop-off. But, you know, Slade is so clear-eyed, particularly in Priest's hands, about how amoral he is, about he's not – he's past the point where he could be considered cynical. He's just really clear about how self-interested he is and about how uh, conventional morality, you know, can be a tool um, in his hands, a weapon – to better exploit his adversary and triumph over him and get what he wants. And usually that's, that's money or it's sex or it's power. And ultimately there, America, to the degree Slade interacts with it, America is, is just an excuse for him. It's an opportunity for him to get where, where he already wanted to go and sort of hone himself. And that's where I think he just sort of can't be considered an evil Captain America an evil Batman, maybe, but not really an evil Captain mm-hmm. America. I, I would well, kind of have the argument for either. I think being mm-hmm. a mercenary who is in some ways the ultimate libertarian kind of embodies the darker aspects of the American dream more than if he was actually fighting for the government. If that just the fact that he is just after money and his own personal interest. Um, Although I also do think that he works very well as a mirror to Batman, not even almost different sides of the same coin. In some ways, like as they get described, sometimes the same side of the same coin. Yeah, I would I would say like he's like uh, uh, innocent Punisher. That's a capitalist, uh, basically. Like that's why I would I would describe Destro, and which brings it back to the Vietnam. Um, Captain America thing because he is this machine built by the United States. He's just using it for his own ends. And frankly, um, that's what our politicians do every day. That's what Paul Ryan's going to do. He's leaving uh, Washington after all the connections he's built up, uh, allegedly working for the public, and now he's going to become a mercenary for some uh, private companies, which John Boehner just did by um, signing up with a marijuana company, of all things. You know, so when he was, you know, in Congress, he was passing all these laws to put black people in prison for smoking marijuana. But now that he's gotten out, the best offer he got from a, as a consulting uh, person is from a marijuana company and now he's all good with it again so uh, what I'm saying is uh, Slade mm-hmm. Wilson is basically just a, a Republican congressman at this point Thank you and he does get one killed earlier in the story but you know all in good spirits and and speak, mm-hmm. speaking of uh, heel face turns like how do you guys feel about Slade's religious conversion uh, about halfway through the series and then his you know, kind of falls from that. I I had some trepidations around that. Uh, I, I mean, I think I was supposed to, you know, in terms yeah. of like, I, do I want him to have forgiveness? I, I don't. I'm also not Christian. So there you go. Um, <laughs> um, but, you know, but Christopher Priest changed his name to Priest because he's a priest and he's very, and he himself is, you know, like a practicing Christian. Um, this story is very much situated in the Episcopalian church which is interesting in some ways. Um, I mean, Joey Kincapelian, as a young adult, uh, Dr. Icon, a.k.a. Isherwood, a.k.a. a really bad dating decision, um, you know, is active in the church. Like, what did you guys make of Deathstroke's, quote, experience? Because he refuses to call it, like, a moment with God or whatever, that, like, shifted his, his moral compass for a while and, like, made him get all for a minute there. Honestly, it kind of made me 
get off board with the book a little bit. I thought it was very well executed, but with that and with some of the Titans crossover stories, it felt like it was almost company mandated rather than naturally what was happening with the story. And I thought it was really well executed. There's a term in pro wrestling, like he made chicken, chicken salad out of chicken shit. Um, <laughs> and, and I, it felt like that to me. And frankly, I, I was starting to lose interest in the book a little bit during that, just because it, it wasn't what it, it didn't really feel like where the book had been heading. Not that it can't, evolve and change where it was going and I think it made some interesting things while it was there but it wasn't my favorite arc what I like about it is that it's actually very realistic if you're a true crime fan uh, you'll notice that many of the most notorious serial killers that have ever lived all go through a period of religious mania and that is what um, Dextroke went through that's exactly what happened to him he had this encounter um with uh during i think during the annual and where he didn't say he meets god but something to that effect and he goes through this period of religious mania now of course he's using this from the very beginning for his own ends he wants to be forgiven he wants something out of it because that's who he is he's a, a psychopath sociopath and so everything he does is for his own ends but that's not uncommon religion often attracts people who use it for their own ends. And like, literally this is what like, like dozens of the biggest serial killers go through this exact same period of, of fervent um, religiosity, just like they may go through a period of fervent um, drug or alcohol addiction. So I, I, I thought it was par for the course. I thought it was interesting to have that, you know, phase of being a psychopathic murderer um, come into a superhero comic book. Yeah, I, I can see that. And, and honestly, part of maybe why it didn't click with me as much was because during those, I wasn't reading the crossover issues. So I was maybe just missing part of the story uh, as it evolved, but it it didn't resonate with me as much as some of the other stuff, especially some of the the pre and frankly, although it's a very small sample size for this post stuff with that storyline. Yeah, I, um, I it, got uh, lost in the crossover stuff. Spencer, I feel like you are super onto the crossover stuff. Uh, the Lazarus contract I absolutely adored um, and thought it was a fantastic story, even though I have a big question that's just the donut hole of it for me. Um, my, my concern with the, the religious thing, and I'm absolutely not equipped to judge it, is that I don't, you know, okay, so we see Deathstroke use Tanya's religion as, a, as an emotional weapon against her, right? Like, mm-hmm. he, he, he literally quotes scripture to, to say that Tanya is a bad Christian if she doesn't let this manipulative asshole back into her life, right? He, he, he brings her a puppy, you know? Yeah, which she, which she <laughs> murders. And, like, I... I you know, so then he goes through the Speed Force, comes out, like quits being Deathstroke for a little while, assembles Defiance, and you know, ultimately, as inevitably, uh, you know, we end up, you know, back with with Deathstroke, the Killer, and the and the Deceiver. And I don't know what the point of making him religious was supposed to be. 
Like we don't, we, we establish particularly in, in the, you know, Jericho talking head scene at the beginning of the Lazarus contract that like, as I think a lot of you use the term confidence porn that, you know, Deathstroke Mm -hmm. is so, you know, super focused on what his target is, you know, obsessively um, that, you know, uh, looking at him in terms of morality is besides the point. Um, and if that's the case and he becomes religious, then I sort of feel like the story needed to say something more about that and what that means. And I, you know, maybe you guys, um, you know, saw it and I didn't, but I, I don't really understand what the point of it was. And that, that kind of has stuck in me since. But you, but you felt like the um, the crossover stuff with the Titans, like that story, did work for you. Yes, my yeah. I mean, okay. So the big thing that I, I don't didn't understand re- I didn't about, read it. So sorry. I really loved it. Um, I, I I haven't. You know, I've been. Hub, I'm very interested. You know, everyone. I'm I'm really interested in your thoughts on this um, as longstanding Titans fans, um, and and Alana. You know that you've you've de- you basically dove into the uh, the seminal <laughs> you know works of him. Um, I haven't really had many Titan stories work for me in like a wholehearted way since Jeff Johns did Titans of Tomorrow with, I think it was Mike McCone. Um, and that's nearly like 15 years ago. And Judas contract, I'm sorry, Lazarus contract, you know, touches on like all of these wonderful Titans moments and like seminal Titans deathstroke moments, connects the character back to his origin and his connection to all of these characters connects it as well with like this, this big, you know, post new 50 or post flashpoint um, arc that Wally West is on and its impact on like the entire DCU and gets you into this, like really, you know, I don't know if you can curse on this show. Can you curse on the show? So much cursing. It gets into like this deeply fucked up story about like Deathstroke desperately trying to, to save the, you know, to save the first ravager who he's an absolute, he's like the, the most toxic possible father to. Um, and then on the other side of it, um, we, we get this religious experience and, and, and a very warm thing for, um, for, for Deathstroke, the, the, the fucked up father, because like what we ultimately learn is that the reason why, like direct kind of the reason why Deathstroke is so great at killing never actually succeeds in killing these teenagers, which is that he makes this deal with Nightwing um, to, to defer the contract that Deathstroke has with Hive in order for uh, Nightwing and the Titans to raise Rose as Ravager and, like, make her a good person and not like Deathstroke. So you think, like, oh, he's, like, one of those, like, fucked-up fathers. And then it turns out that, like, the, the deal is off. Deathstroke is trying to find a way back into the Speed Force so he can, like, go back in time and save Ravager. And I don't understand why, like, Nightwing was supposed to have broken the contract. Or was it that, like, Nightwing did everything right and, like, Deathstroke shouldn't blame uh, Nightwing for the way Rose turned out. He should blame Rose or he should blame, you know, God forbid, himself. Um, So, like, that's the part of the Titans uh, crossover that I didn't really get. But I loved every moment of it while it was happening. Yeah, I only read the Deathstroke part, so I was just mostly confused by what was happening. Ditto, sorry. But you're definitely making making the appeal work towards me, you know. I um 
I just wasn't, I, I, I got confused about what else I was supposed to buy. It's the usual sort of cross Michigan. I do appreciate well, well, actually giving, coming up with an in, an in character, in narrative explanation for why the, the all deadly killer couldn't kill the bunch of teenagers, you know. I mean, they, they and, kind and of all, try to offer that explanation for Dr. Light later when they bring Dr. Light in for a little guest appearance. Um, uh, well, well just one, 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 about that, apparently. one, one quick thing to, to something you said, Hub, um, that it seemed company mandated. Um, it, I'm sure you're right. I have no reason to disbelieve it. But I, I it, is worth it. No, it is worth noting that when you go back and reread the whole series, um, he seeds the idea of this Lazarus contract, Priest does, very early in the reintroduction of Rose. Like, Rose is constantly talking, not, well, not, I shouldn't say constantly, but Rose conspicuously talks very early on about how Nightwing trained her. Nightwing is responsible for her fighting style. And then you can sort of see in the way that, she draw, that she's drawn, she's very acrobatic, she's very balletic, like way more than the kind of brute force killer that Slade is or the, um, you know, um, or any of, you know, Slade or, you know, Wintergreen or even Adelaide's. Um, you know, various companions and alter egos. Um, so, you know, perhaps it was, you know, decided from the start of Rebirth or something like that, that like eventually uh, these two or these three series, we're going to have to cross over and we're going to say something about, you know, the Titans in DC Rebirth, given that, you know, one of the, the main criticisms of the New 52 was that like for five years, they basically um, shunted to the side what had been in many people's minds a core DCU franchise. Mm-hmm. I, I do want to pick up on what you just said about like how this is mentioned very early on. I feel like there's so much in this series that Priest saw, like he saw like the future of the series, like a lot, like he, there's hints constantly dropped in, you know, it, uh, one issue that might be picked up on maybe 10 issues later. And I, I think the, way that the story is told is worth talking about because he's always jumping forward, jumping ahead, jumping backwards in ways that I never really felt disoriented by because it always came together at the end. And he did the same thing in Black Panther. And what he said, I read an interview that he gave at the time, which basically what he was trying to do was trying to create, bring like Pulp Fiction into comic books. And I think he's kind of perfected that, which is something that's very, very difficult to do in a comic book because there there isn't motion there isn't um there there aren't the some you can't use a lot of the techniques that maybe tarantino uses to give you a a clear time frame for everything because one page may be taking part at one place and one page will be taken at another and panels will he'll do flashback panels too a lot of flashback panels on a page uh bringing back hints and stories and it could be very easy to get lost but he and even though he's working with like a half dozen different artists he always uh keeps it grounded and understandable i think that's one of the things that makes this book so fun is like you'll get like to a cliffhanger and then you have a whole issue that takes place like two weeks after it before you jump back and see what happens with the cliffhanger well, you know, speaking of the art, like, so I, I, I didn't realize this. You're talking about Pulp Fiction as in the movie Pulp Fiction. This yeah. definitely loves to do these little black, individual black, tiny panels with the typed-on headline title for, like, different subchapters. And they really well, do maintain that throughout the whole series. So that, oh, that isn't just from here. That's from his work in general. 
Yeah, it's it's like it's it's a core part of of Quantum and Woody. It's a core part of Black Panther. It's 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 like and and you're not you're not wrong. Like in the same way that like, you know, in particular, someone you know, a director like Tarantino, has like a, a very particular and instantly recognizable style, like down to the soundtrack. Like that, <laughs> no matter what book, yeah. In Pulp Fiction. The title cards, I totally forget. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so well, the title card like, things are, are in that as well. This is all feeling very '90s to me, but like in a good way, in a good way. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I want to be clear too. I, I had said that some of the decisions felt like they may have been company mandated. That isn't always necessarily a bad thing. Part of what I love about the way Priest writes is his almost story verse problem solving abilities, where okay, how do I take this Deathstroke character and make him do what I want to do, but still make it make sense with the previous continuity? It's that he's able to figure out a way to do these things with these previously existing characters. Uh, And like you said, with the Lazarus contract, with, okay, there's all this previous backstory of this character that don't make sense. How can I keep it that that existed, but still make it make sense? It's really impressive. And it's just fun to read from just like almost puzzle aspect to it and just being like, oh, shit, he did that? That totally works. And, yeah. and, uh, and it's, it's not free verse. It, it's like he's, he's found the way to express himself within the form of a sonnet rather than just like going all over the place with it. And, and in some ways to me, that's more impressive. I would love it if after this series is, is over and done with, they do an absolute edition that includes Priest's beat sheet at the outset of this book. Like, I need to know, because of, you know, as everyone has said, just how amazingly densely plotted it is, how much all of these different arcs build on one another. He basically creates mini status quos for Deathstroke in each particular arc and all of the characters around them that, like, eventually at the end at, at like, you know, three fifths of the way through each arc, like becomes unstable because of the force of its own contradictions and then builds back up into something else, including this, this crossover that, you know, gets you into this sort of broader world of the Titans. And, you know, as long as we're singing Christopher Priest's praises and deservedly. So by the way, can I move that the Christopher, the Christopher Priest fandom be called something like the congregation? Ah. Uh. Approved, Can we do that? Approved. Yes. As <laughs> a official you know, amount or, of congregation. Um, so, like, this guy, you know, is, is probably most known for um, the groundbreaking Black Panther run. And we've got in Deathstroke a parody of the yes. Black Panther. <laughs> and it's an amazing parody. Like, so, please, I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, it's kind of nuts because you know, of, of Quantum and Woody, like his first major book as a writer is a humor series, but like Priest doesn't get enough credit for how funny he is and like how consistent mm-hmm. and funny he is. And if you are funny, that means you understand pacing. And that shows in the rest of Priest's work. Even and and just to emphasize it for folks, like we're talking about the Red Lion, who is the president for life of a small African nation. Um, he was a reoccurring character, and certainly in the very beginning of the stories, like, yeah, he's ruler for life, a small African nation. 
He has a fancy suit too. Um, it looks almost exactly her. like Black Panther's suit. It's great. Yeah. I, and I he really started showing up in Justice League too. That's oh, sweet. I can't. Wait. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's awesome. I really love the Red Lion because it just it's it makes fun of like what he's most known for. Because when you read the Black Panther comic, Black Panther isn't actually the main character of the book. Um, it's um, Everett K. Ross. He's the main character of the book because Priest decided that like Black, Char- Black Panther as a character is kind of a problematic because he's always he's so sm- he's so much smarter and better than everyone else. It's hard to really make him the protagonist of the book because you're not going to root for him all that much. You need someone like more human to look at him and be in awe of him, explain him and tell the jokes too. Uh, And so when he has this red lion character who is, I feel like it's kind of like black Panther. If he had to deal with like the real United States of America, because in the beginning of the series, he's like, he's being deposed by rebels supported by the United States uh, from his, from his, from the throne of not Wakanda. And so he needed, he ends up getting uh, Destro's help in order to preserve that he would have to help, he would have to reach out to a supervillain instead of say a superheroes. Well, um, I mean, he's also doing some ethnic cleansing, so maybe the superheroes kind of thing. T'Challa would do as well. I, I, <laughs> T'Challa is not above that. <laughs> oh my gosh, our listeners are going to lose their minds, but that's okay. No, that's okay. actually in Priest's book. Uh, yeah. In, in the, it definitely actually is in Priest's Black Panther. I don't, they're maybe not quite going as far as ethnic cleansing, but he's very concerned about the immigration problem of people who are not Wakandans to Wakanda. And there are warring factions, ethnic cleansing going outside of Wakanda that he doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily put that much focus on. So Priest kind of takes this character to his, mo- his like, his worst. Um, aspects uh, the worst aspects of black panther he highlights um this and while still maintaining some of the cool stuff because the red lion is still you know very noble and very honorable in a certain sense like he he says he's a man of his word and he helps slade wilson even though slade tried to kill him and he tried to kill slade but he ends up breaking him out out of prison eventually uh, again to help him um, embarrass the United States government and retake his throne. I just think it's a. I would still read that Black Panther comic too. So, uh, kudos to mm. Priest. Yeah, one of my and, favorite and just, lines just to... in the whole series is really early on, where they are having. I think it's even in the first issue, maybe. But he's yeah. having the discussion with the Red Lion, and line where he talks about how. America will help him wipe out once this bill passes. America will help him wipe all the or wipe out all of the terrorists. And Slade goes, accepting uh, yourself, of course. And he goes, Oh no, no, I'm Christian. They're Muslim. <laughs> yeah. And, and just to, just to build. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Just to build on all of that, like it, you know, not only shows what a what a confident and dexterous writer that priest is that he's willing to have this character, but to build on your point, um, it's, it's, it, it really does seem, and I thought you, you put it really well, like it's actually taking the critique of, of, of black Panther that priest introduced to, to just the, the, you know, the next couple steps further along the path that he lays out because, you know, priest consistently throughout his books, you know, whenever they deal with geopolitics, 
is primarily concerned with saying that like these these heroic villainous you know spectrum categories simply don't apply when we're talking about you know what you have to do to to govern to hold power and what it means to to do so and you know Deathstroke is is a much different application of that but you know you see with 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 um with with a character like uh, the Red Lion, that, you know, he's the hero of his own story, and that's really clear. And it doesn't matter sort of what it is that, um, that, that either America, you know, very transactionally will either, you know, circumstance depending, um, you know, stand with or stand against, um, that there is no really fixed moral center and that the Red Lion is reacting against that and, like, sees himself as, as this, you know, as we come to see, you know, in a twisted way, bulwark between, you know, civilization and barbarism when, in fact, he is the line that, that erodes all of that. And, like, I, I, I get not to, you know, beat this into submission when, you know, you guys see this differently than I do, but I sort of feel like that would be the kind of scenario where if they wanted to make the critique that, you know, Deathstroke is the way Deathstroke is because the United States is the way that it is, that's where, like, you would actually have to have Deathstroke hired against the red lion that like he's sponsored by America and like wants to do America's bidding and so forth, rather than the situation that he frequently finds himself in where like, he doesn't like, he doesn't want to work for hive. He doesn't want to work for governments because he like he says at one point, And I frankly find this against the character of Deathstroke, like not believable in his, in his moral universe that he doesn't want to um, support perpetual war um, because it's foolish to think that, you know, these wars uh, will end or that you can kill an ideology. And, like, that seems to me more Christopher Priest talking than Slade Wilson talking, because Slade Wilson would love nothing more than perpetual war. That's perfect business for him. And, and that just seems like, once again, we're like, if they want to make the critique that, like, America, like, I think, like, the critique is really, like, America is great business for the Slade mm-hmm. Wilsons of the world. And, like, that's a different that's, that's different than saying that America made him. I'm not saying that, like, America doesn't make Slade Wilsons. It makes tons of them. It makes people like Eric, like Eric Prince, who, like, makes it, you know, a giant multi-million dollar, multi-billion dollar industry. It just seems like Deathstroke himself is not a character who's making that argument, but, but, but one who embodies a slightly more orthogonal and even kind of, I think, more morally twisted critique. Well, I I think what he says really says about the U.S. government is that there's tons of ideologues in it, and you can't and he doesn't want to work deal with ideologues. Like I don't see yeah. like Slade Wilson working for John Bolton ending up well. Now the John Boltons of the DC universe do end up creating a lot of work for him uh, tangentially, but he doesn't want to like work directly with them because that only ends up uh, one way with. Uh, Clay Wilson being um, p- betrayed eventually because he is not ideologue. He is just a mercenary, and he thinks all these I- 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 geopolitical ideologies are just, you know, cover for people who at the co- at their core are just like him, just mercenaries too. They're just even more um, deranged than he is because they think that they're the good guys. So can I ask you a you question? Know, then? Can... Go ahead. Oh. Yeah. Oh yeah. Go ahead. Do you think – I don't think there's a right or wrong answer to this. Um, do you think that Slade would work for Bashar Assad? 
do I think he will work for Bashar al-Assad? Hmm. Yes. That's a, that's an interesting question. Um, would you I take think, that contract? I think at the end of the day, if the money was right, possibly. Um, depends. Is he going to work for Bashar al-Assad? To, like the thing is, he wouldn't work for Bashar al-Assad to fight a rebel group. He would take. He would work for Bashar al-Assad to take out like a general who works for Bashar al-Assad as well, who Bashar thinks is going to. Um, try to depose him so he can take over uh, the Syrian government. I think that would be the death stroke story that would happen. It wouldn't be just him, you know, starring, taking, joining up with the war effort. It would be something a little bit more interesting than that. But I don't think he really, he doesn't, he just doesn't, I think his objection to working for the U.S. government is that it's always going to end up with him working for someone like Amanda Waller, who will as soon kill Deathstroke as anybody else. At least there's honor among thieves, you know. Well, speaking of this comics usage of military figures, like his wife, Adeline Kane, who, God, I wish I remembered which critic said this. I'm dying to find it. Described her as being the woman, was it the, the most definitely divorced person in comics, Adeline <laughs> Kane. Um I mean, I think like yeah, like when you shoot out your spouse's eye, you are definitely divorced. Um, is it? She works for the government. She's still in the military, or in, it's kind of unclear to me exactly what capacity she serves. She's constantly just using her position to try to fuck with Slade's life. And you know, you under it's. And she's also just sort of exists as a really unlikable punching bag in the story. And I don't really know like what to make of the series treatment of her. In that way, um, I mean, obviously the story argues that she can definitely fight because she is able to, like, have a real freaking tussle with Deathstroke, and she doesn't even have any superpowers. Um, but she's, like, kind of just awful in ways that make me not interested in her as a character at all. Um, and I don't know if it's supposed to be, like, they sometimes play up this angle with her where she's this government and Paraxinic who's like, this is how we do things. And then sometimes she's just, you know, really that, that, that irrational, crazy wife. Got to get rid of that crazy woman I used to be married to. Ha ha. I don't know. I, I'm not really, I, really I, comfortable I, with it. I, I liked it because it was kind of, it was like both. Because I I've, I've thought her, whatever her irrationality was, it was the irrationality of the U.S. government at that point, right? So it wasn't mm-hmm. like, so she's, the, she's maybe the one character in the story. Oh, she's one character in the story who definitely in another story would be the hero the noble um, federal agent who's taking down this killer who used to be her lover and, you know, destroyed her life, basically. And she's justified in all her anger at him. But since we're taking – we're usually in, you know, the perspective of the victims of her aggression, we see it in another light. But I didn't really think any – like, it's hard – you, like, I don't feel judgmental about her because she has every – I'm, of course, I'm rooting for Slade, but like, there's a reason why he can't just take her out because he knows he's wrong. He knows he's guilty. Uh, uh, he knows he deserves it. There's this one scene where he has the opportunity to get her locked up because he has the data disc with all the evidence of all the crimes she committed, and he could turn those in if you're locked up for life. And he throws them away because mm-hmm. he uh, because he knows that it's his fault most of all that she is how she is, not not hers. Um, he did this to her. He's responsible for it. And her behavior towards him isn't necessarily um, 
irrational or unreasonable given the circumstances. Well, I think like, Trump nominated her to be CIA director. Yes, that's exactly what she is. Yeah. But yeah, it is well, interesting so that she is maybe the only character in the series that is you can see where she's coming from with some of her actions and maybe they are justified in a certain way. At the same time, she is maybe the only character in the series that you never are tempted to identify with, even in the slightest. I mean, she's written as like almost a caricature of a nagging shrew of a woman who, yes, it is, her perspective makes sense, but her character is not one that you can identify with. And she's almost alone in that regard in the series. And that's where she's and kind Chris, of has an ex-wife. I'll just put that out there. <laughs> and, and like, you know, that's, that's where it's really a shame because you, I think given the, the, you know, critique and the amorality that priest is presenting, you know, Deathstroke with, and like that Deathstroke is the exponent of that, his children are to various degrees avatars of where they, that, that sort of, um, you know, amorality, um, both, you know, as a parent and as, as a kind of, you know, inherent um, descendant and, you know, bearer of the legacy of that, you know, break off in different ways. And because of that, like, you do want Adeline to present a different, and like, you know, um, Wintergreen is his Alfred. So he's this sort of like, regretful, also betrayed, but codependent father figure slash manservant, you know, squire or something like that. And that's where you kind of do need Adeline to, to be like, just, you know, standing for some argument, like making some point beyond like sort of being, you know, an evil Miss Piggy, like coming to, you know, <laughs> barrel down in a truck to, you know, avenge the fact that she scored. Like, Alana, I think, you know, you're right when you say like, basically like, she's fundamentally just sort of a woman scorned and they don't do more than, than that. And they, they kind of just, you know, unfortunately priest allows her to not have much more depth in that. And as everyone else has said, be a kind of unlikable character and it's a, it's a waste and it's not fair. So I, I think it's fair because she's a fed and she deserves it. <laughs> but they don't make her, but they don't oh make, but that's the thing, right? Like they don't make her really be a, like, you, you just, she's a fed by, so she's a fed because of what she does. She's like, they don't do enough to establish that she's a fed because of who she is. Right. Mm. Like you just sort of see her behavior and it, and you know, it, you know, like, okay. So like an example in a totally different comic, like it's evil that like Eric Larson made the savage dragon, like his, his uncomplicated hero, a Chicago police officer. And like, <laughs> like, and, like, doesn't really deal with that. Like, you know, you don't see the Savage Dragon, like, constantly torturing black children. Right? Like, the Savage Dragon doesn't have, like, essentially, like, a warehouse. where Like, like it's that kind right. of thing where, like, they're playing with a critique and they don't realize it or they don't really develop it or they don't appreciate, you know, what they have. And, like, I sort of feel like that's the thing – with, with Adelaide Kane, like, you need her to, to, to really be a fed, like, be a fed, like, in her bones, like, to, to, to show, like, you know, Adeline Kane was involved, like, you would say, like, you know, she was really great as a torturer at a black site, and that's how she got to where she got. Like, you need to have her be Gina Haspel if you're really going to have her 
ultimately say anything beyond the fact that, like, you know, she's a Fed. She seems like a Fed because it's a plot device, because it's a way of, like, bringing in more action to this and having, like, the other side, the mommy half of the family, but not really making it. Like, it's not just that we don't see Adeline, um, you know, as, as a point of view character and we don't come to identify her with her. It's because they never, like, Priest never gets around to establishing what she's supposed to really be you know, a stand-in for four. Like, she, she doesn't say anything with that character, and I think that's a weakness of the book. Well, you mentioned Chicago real quick. I do want to talk at least briefly about the famous Chicago run, gun yeah. violence issue um, where they brought back Creeper. God, I fucking love the Creeper just on aesthetics alone. Um, so that issue, you know, came out uh, definitely referencing not just the, you know, gun violence in Chicago, but also definitely came out in the context of the uh, the murders of the club of gay club patrons and the Pulse Massacre. Um, and it was definitely one of the most, like, this is an issue comic, comics of the whole series. How did you guys feel about it? Um, I really liked it um, because I liked where it ended up, where Priest basically uh, judged a whole lot and said, you know, all of the... All, both sides of the like, so you have these mothers of children who are slain who hire a de- what they who they think is Deathstroke to kill the black gangbangers who kill their their children, right? But like in the book, it's it's made pretty clear like that's not necessarily a good thing killing other black people for killing ch- uh, those children to get revenge on them. They also bring out you know the cops and the good gun owners, the white gun owners, who uh, get guns for protection and show that that's not necessarily a good thing. And at the end of the story, basically, Dust Trope's solution is, you know what? Uh, the re- what should really happen is that you should teach gangbangers how to shoot better so that they don't catch anybody with strays because then no one will care. And I, I, I really liked where that ended up because there was a couple of points in the issue where I was like, this is kind of making, you know, somewhat reactionary arguments, but he, he was having a priest was having a dialectic in it. And I could see that um, he really is not on either of the, the sides on the narrow bandwidth of the conversation we have about gun violence in reality. He's kind of outside of this, or at least with uh, uh, definitely Deathstroke is completely outside of this. His solution has nothing to do with either side. And I really liked where it ended up because it brought in a lot of more, more nuanced uh, aspects of the talk about gun violence that you won't even see on like a MSNBC, certainly not a CNN and ends up in a place that's a lot more interesting, a lot more fun and fit the character. Hub, I have a question for you specifically as the teen titanologist of days past. Okay. What, what, what do you, how do you feel like the comic has treated Joey, AKA Jericho? Like, what do you do? You feel like this characterization is interesting. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I I'm kind of conflicted about the character in general. Honestly, I haven't read like the these issues of Deathstroke are the most of the the Joey Jericho character that I've read. I I'm reading the series uh, for the podcast as mm-hmm. we go. I read all of it at one point, like about 
five years ago in an almost like fugue state um, and just don't remember most of it. The portrayal of Joey in this comic book, I think is interesting. And I like that they're presenting him as a flawed character who isn't necessarily evil. And that actually jibes with most of what we've known about the character. Part of what I Mm. like is I think that his, it's interesting at least that there's a point where you can present a character who is groundbreaking in a way in his portrayal, in this case, as a bisexual character and not have to present them as a Mary Sue type character, but also not have them be the villain. I I think that's really interesting. Uh, Mm -hmm. There are aspects of the character that are definitely problematic. um, But I honestly, I I wish I could answer this better because I don't have as much knowledge of the previous Jericho character uh, as I probably should. I like Jericho a lot. Yeah, Yeah, Yeah. I I mean, I, I felt like if you're going to do, okay, so like, let's start with, with Jericho as like, we, we first meet him in the Judas contract, right? Like he's, he's, he's been Deathstroke's, you could argue ultimate victim because like Grant's death doesn't real like there, there are lots of reasons. There are lots of things to blame before you blame Deathstroke, even though you should blame Deathstroke <laughs> as well. Right. Grant did this to himself first and foremost, and then second of all, Deathstroke and third most time, maybe. I don't know. And, and like, I, I want to come back to, Hive, to the Hive-Deathstroke relationship a bit later if we can. But, you know, okay, so that's, we, we see Joey as, like, the kid who nearly dies because Deathstroke has this sick fixation with being Deathstroke. And, like, when we introduce, when we see him in Judas contract, Wolfman and Perez do him like he's Deathstroke for excitement. Like he comes home from the war and he, he like can't really leave it. Like the thrill of it, despite the fact that he was in, you know, a tiger cage of all, you know, for God's sake, like he really becomes this, this kind of like sick, Rudyard Kipling-esque, uncomfortable soldier of fortune. And it's Grant who pays the price and Annalene pays the price and like shoots his eye out. And, like, Joey can't ever talk. But then when you see Priest draw him, his eyes are super big and super wide. He's such a loving and open character. And, you know, women love him. He's super empathetic. He's clearly very giving, despite the fact that that he's not able to talk. He's the gentlest of the Titans. Um, Eventually, like, you know, back when they started doing, like, the the weird stuff in 1990 and 91, like he flips out and becomes like, he like sort of dark Phoenixes, but like, nevertheless, like that's sort of Joey as we come to see him. And it doesn't make a lot of sense. Like they, they just sort of have him be Deathstroke's son without really taking into account what that would really mean. And priest really takes that into account. And you see like Joey is like the competent son who turned out, as well as any of these people were going to turn out. And like one of the things that, you know, he does is like seduce and break the heart of his dad's best friend and like father surrogate. 
it's like an incredibly ugly edible thing. Um, yeah, I mean, I, and, I I I think I still put that on Isherwood at a certain point. Like I I we don't really see enough of what actually happened between the two of them. Um, yeah, I, I had difficulty trying to identify or care about the character of Isherwood after he has an affair with this guy who he's known since he was a little kid. He was kid. a child. Yeah. And yeah, like, like you can totally and look like up with people a million years older than you, but not if you've like known, not if they knew not you if you're their uncle, you essentially. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, what exactly. I, like he can, you know, he can have sex with all the 50 year olds he wants, but not the 50 year olds that he knew when he was eight. That's all. I'm let saying. me see if I can let me see if I can let me see if I can put it a little bit more precisely because you're okay. everyone's right here. Everyone's right here. Okay. Like okay. I don't I don't mean to say I don't mean to say that like Isherwood is anything but a creep. Like you even you see Deathstroke at one point, like when he actually confronts Isherwood about it, he was like, Joey was a grown man and Joey knew what he wanted and and, and Deathstroke is like, Shut the fuck up, Isherwood. It's still gross. Like you knew you've known yeah. my kids since they were babies. Like they like Rose and Joey look to you like an uncle. Like whatever it was that, that Joey wanted, it's fucked up that you did it. Right. But they also show that like not old like Joey very explicitly says again and again, like, I did this because I wanted it, I seduced you and like they give Joey a ton of agency for that choice and show like ultimately to Joey's regret that like he does it in an important way precisely because Ish is so close to Deathstroke. And like he does this on some level to hurt his father. And it ends up literally ruining, destroying, and like it's Isherwood's fault that this happens. But like it's it's ultimately what destroys Isherwood, you know, physically and emotionally. And it has ultimately because Joey is still, you know, the healthiest of all of these people. Um you know, Joey comes to, 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 to see that it was, it was really deeply wrong and, and, how, and how, how, you know, depressed and miserable he is. And, you know, in an important way, unable to move on after Isherwood's death because of how guilty he feels about it. Um, it's the first time I really felt that there was a portrayal of Joey that made sense and that, like, didn't, again, like, 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 um, like you said, make him a villain. Um, but also, like, showed him acting, like, in, in ways that you would think that, like, the son of Deathstroke could not help but act in. I mean, the whole thing is super edible, and the series has a, a lot of that in general. I mean, like, Deathstroke's adoption of Tanya Spears, a.k.a. Power Girl. Well, for one thing, I'm just so glad that Deathstroke remembered that there's a black power girl in the DCU floating out there who, like, someone should do something with. And I was glad that he was like, I will do that, because I did not forget that you guys invented a black power girl who's a super genius. And also with Christian, and that can make for some interesting counterpoints in the story. So salute to you, Chris Priest, for bringing her back. But, um, you know, that whole thing is like she's a, she's a substitute daughter for, for Rose, right? Because he comes and they, they, they become... Uh, they develop that relationship after Rose has one of her, like, no, fuck you, bye, bad moments. But that's still such an edible relationship between the two of them, even though I don't think that he was actually going to try anything untoward. It's still coming from that same kind of thing. And and so you this is the first time we've mentioned Rose. And, you know, as of all the characters in the story, like, a lot of you were uh, – um, uh, didn't uh, like 
Deathstroke's ex wife. I actually liked her because I thought she was kind of like this badass force. With Rose, she gets a lot of screen time, and I really uh-huh. didn't connect with almost any of it. I thought the, a lot, a lot of what she was going through just wasn't nearly as interesting after you know the initial um, part where you know it's like she teams up with Batman and Deathstroke teams up with the um, with the bad Robin. I, I found that. <laughs> I found that that was very exciting, but when it came time to where she's doing like this personal journey where she was, you know, trying to figure out who she is and uh, dealing with, you know, her, her issues with her father and her um, fiance, like I really, that story, it felt like kind of dragged along, like, come on, homegirl, just just put on your suit and just go kick some ass. That's how superheroes deal with their trauma. They don't actually confront it. They just go and take it out on other people. And I, I wish she had started to do that a little bit sooner. Well, we yeah, will come th- back to talk about the Batman, oh. Damien, Rose, mirroring parental thing in the end of this when we talk about issue 30. But I do say definitely the issues that there's crossovers in the beginning, four and five, are some of the best of the series. But Rose's personal journey of, like, with her uh, – they come on family and all that. Totally, I liked it. I I, I enjoyed it. I, I there are definitely lines that Chris Priest put in her mouth that I like can't deal with as like no seventeen year old or however old she is like eighteen. I don't know. But whatever. She has to be twenty, I guess. But nobody fucking says that. What was it? Her whole like repeated like I'm just using. Uh, where is it? I wrote it down. It's about owning your sexuality, not giving it away. Like I get that. She's saying that as a quote or something else she's read, but I don't believe that Rose is quoting that and saying that out loud. Uh, her and her boyfriend are definitely having sex, and that's fine. Um, <laughs> so, but I overwhelmingly felt like I, I did like her like going on to you know, and the way it turned out, it was all her dad's manipulation, but like going on to try to connect with her mother's family and visit and spend time with her mom community and in the Twin Cities area, etc. Sorry, I think I cut someone off there. Oh, no, no. I, I, I enjoyed all of that journey as well, actually. Um, and I, I I liked her character for the most part. But then towards like the late 20s issues, I just started getting confused because they just kept piling other things for her. And now she has multiple personalities or is channeling somebody else's personality and murdering people. Um, and I can also see her. Yeah, those she was totally having sex with her boyfriend, but I can also see her trying to find a reason to tell her assassin dad that she wasn't. Yeah. He points out that her feeling that she has to defend herself indicates that she's not really murdered at all. But, like, if she feels that way that she has to stand towards you slate again, that's on you. I'm just putting that as a point of, like, I don't think that 19-year-old women, girls, would ever say that. But um, I want to share one the personality thing, though, is I love, I think it's been, like, 29, issue 29, like, they straight up say, like, oh, no, you, you don't have a split personality, like, spiritual connection. You got hit in the head really bad, which is true. <laughs> she did. And the delivery of that line, I completely cracked up. It was just straight up, like, this is, like, one of the few DC comics or anything where anybody like, would straight up say, like, oh, no, you're just dealing with a serious head injury, which she is. That happened at her brother's wedding. <laughs> I, I was kind of mad on Rose for the reasons that everyone says, like, the, the split personality thing really made me sort of feel like a tell that Priest doesn't really know what he wants to say with this character. He knows, I think, what he wants to say 
about Deathstroke in relation to Rose, which is that Rose is, Rose is the child of his that he actually loves. Like, he, he beats himself up over Grant. He has a kind of impossible relationship with Joey for a variety of reasons, not least of which, like, he, he you know, is, is kind of, you know, disgusted by Joey, like, ever since Joey's a kid and they're, you know, having that sick uh, camping experience to, like, toughen up Grant and them. Um, but he loves Rose and sees that, like, when Wintergreen says, you know, he's, he's, he's hiring people to kill you because he needs to connect with you. And, like, that's how Slade does it. Like, that's messed up and um, seems a little bit too pat. Um, but uh, spare one thought for how awesome uh, Rose's boyfriend, Luis, is as a vigilante, because he has one of the best and most inspired origin stories of any vigilante in any superhero universe, which is simply this. Deathstroke fucked my mom. <laughs> <laughs> I, am, I, am, I am a supervillain because Deathstroke fucked my mom. <laughs> There would probably be a lot of supervillains running around right now with that origin story if it was more of a personal compulsion, really. But you know, I'll, I'll start I'll sort of for, the Brotherhood of Deathstroke fucked my mom. I mean, that's you know, Amy's motivation. That's why he's such yeah. a shit. So let's talk about that. Can folks hear me? Yeah. 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 Okay. Sorry, I thought I went out for a sec. So you know. Well, like issue five or six or so is we have these amazing scenes of switched partners team up. You have Damien um, and Slade, where Slade is trying to break Damien down and get information from him, and Slade and Batman is trying to like not just throttle Rose for being a distraction. Slash, he's secretly actually trying to get information from her about Deathstroke. You know, like. The, those issues are just wonderfully written. Uh, you know, you, I think you have like the best line. I, I, I haven't, I don't read a ton of bad books these days and I don't really read a ton of Damien, but I would be shocked to believe if there's ever a Damien statement that's better than the following quote, come on in here and slash my neck. Then I can be your kid too, which he literally <laughs> says. Like, and I'm just like, you're the most wonderful evil child in the world. Um, so those issues were so wonderful that I'm I'm not at all surprised when the series came around and for issue 30 the teasers said and guys if you haven't read issue 30 yet good night we love you come read issue 30 and then listen to the rest of this okay when they said that they were going to have a storyline where it could be Batman and Deathstroke and they're going to be dealing with <gasps> could it be that Deathstroke is the real father of Damien and of course we know the answer is no but um, I'm really looking forward to these just because, yeah, Deathstroke is an example of evil Batman. It's one of the reasons why our poor Dick Grayson has such a bad tendency of doing whatever Deathstroke tells him to do. Um, and they already set up these characters as having this great chemistry and rapport in the conversations from those earlier issues. So really, like when people are saying, well, where's this Deathstroke Damien's dad thing coming from? I don't see it in any of the origin texts of the character. Like, that's completely missing the point. The point that the story is coming from is we've seen these characters have good interactions together as written by Chris Priest. And therefore, we would like to have more excuses to have interactions between them as written by Chris Priest. That's all this is about, and I'm totally happy to have it because they were delightful. So 
why don't you guys think about uh, issue 30? I mean, it starts off with Alfred and Wintergreen talking, and Wintergreen is obviously the dark Alfred to uh, <laughs> to uh, Batman's Alfred, um, and they have, they have wonderful rapport as well. But um, but yeah, like I'd love to hear Phil's thoughts about the most recent issue. I I loved it. I I loved especially the interplay between Wintergreen and Alfred. I loved their friendship, uh, and I love the dueling descriptions by their children of Batman and Deathstroke and realizing that either of those could apply to either character. Um, I, I just Jason thought Todd, it was really, what was that Jason Todd? I honestly wasn't I was sure Dick. which Robin it was. I thought that it was Dick Grayson, but could have been any of them. Well, I, it start with, I don't know. Um, I don't see Jason Todd saying a line like, I don't actually call him dad, but I should. He's more than earned the title. That seems like a Dick Grayson thing to say. Yeah. Yeah, I, I had read it as, as a Dick Grayson thing. Um, but just, yeah, the line, he's not a puzzle, he's a Net-a-Sketch. It's so good. And um, it it totally makes sense. Like, you could totally read that as that's a description of Deathstroke, too. You want to make him complicated, but in fact, he is just incredibly efficient. Um, well, and, and the I think twin that's how I read Etch-a-Sketch. etch feels to me like it's a slate that you can just wipe out and start again, and that felt like, that's why I thought maybe, that plus hair is why I thought maybe it was Jason Todd. I, I'm not a Jason Toddologist. I did not read those Batman comics for shit, but I, I felt like that actually sounded like a... Uh, a not at all flattering description. Oh, I, I read it as like, he is incredibly straightforward, straight ahead and simple. And you want to make it complicated. You want to make who he is a more complicated person, mm. but it just isn't. I'll buy that. I'll and buy I think that. that pairs really well with uh, Jericho's description of, I mean, if Pop were a sous chef, he'd be the most ruthlessly efficient sous chef alive. It's just how he's wired. He takes it all the way. And I think that would be a description of Batman as well. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I really enjoyed those juxtapositions. About who these characters are, are, I like, I really like um, Destro's lines at the end where, you know, Batman's kind of, you know, doing his typical posturing, like you're done. Destro's done. You can't do this. And he's like, I'm not some idiot who dresses like a penguin, okay? You have <laughs> – I am Deathstroke. I, I can, you are operating because I allow it. Robin is still alive because I allow it. And, you know, they kind of, they don't even really have a fight at the end. They kind of just walk away from each other because they know that both of them are telling uh, the truth or what could be the truth because they're both so skilled, so talented, so smart – and this is one thing that Priest does better than probably any other comic writer. He writes a character like a Batman, <clears throat> like a Bat- Black Panther, like a Deathstroke, a guy who is just five steps ahead of everyone else, better than almost any comic book writer. He shows how smart these characters are, how advanced they are, how no matter how down they might seem, they always have a plan out. And to have two of these characters have to face off against one another, he knows that they, at 
uh, in certain circumstances, they would just walk away from each other because that would be the smartest thing to do. Like I, one of the funniest things that happened in the book and also one of the saddest is when uh, Destro gets the speed force and he's running uh, away. He's running and the flat and Kid Flash is chasing him. And at a certain point, Destro just gives, I forget what the line is, but he basically tells him like, I have the speed force now. So do you, but so that means that we're equal at this point. And I am the greatest killer in the world, and you're just a kid who can run fast. Now, at the same speed, what do you think is going to happen? And Kid Flash just runs away from him. Like, he's able mm-hmm. to defeat a superhero just by uh, psyching him out. And I thought that was just a brilliant thing. And that, and Batman and Deathstroke, at the end of this, kind of psych each other out. Uh, and I thought that was just a really good illustration of what these two char- who these two characters are at the end of the day, and I, I f- you know Grant Morrison kind of I feel like with Grant Morrison tried to do this with Prometheus, he just had Batman Prometheus beat up Batman really easily, right? But it, with Deathstroke, with when you get to Christopher Priest, they really just talk it themselves out of fighting each other because they know that they are equals and they're not sure who's going to win. I, like I really that, uh, thought that uh, this Carlo was... Pagulian's oh. art on this issue because I just thought that the faces in it were really excellent and expressive and not heinous. Um, and those are nice things. Sorry, you were saying, Spencer? No, well, first of all, yes. This is, I think, Pagulian's best issue of, the, of, of his end of the run. It's, it's perfectly paced. It moves exactly where the story demands. It slows down where the story demands. It's the most in sync I've seen Pagulian and Priest on. It sort of felt to me, and I'm so excited for these next, you know, five issues, that, like, this is Christopher Priest, like, reading um, about all of the difficulties that the, uh, the Ben Affleck solo Batman movie is, is, is going through, and, and just sort of saying, like, oh, this is going to be a Batman Deathstroke movie? God damn it, I'm going to write it. Like, I'm going to write what this, what this movie should be. And if you, like, there's, there's, I remember, I think it's um, the New York Magazine profile of him recently um, that, like, Priest makes a point of saying, like, you know, they never let me write Batman. Like, they never let me write Superman. They never let me write, like, the iconic characters. And, like, throughout Deathstroke, like, this book has functioned as, like, the sickest possible interpretation of the Bat family. And many different points in the book, subtly and unsubtly, have sort of, you know, made it so that, like, you could sort of see this as well being, like, Christopher Priest's, you know, like, audition reel for for taking over the Bat franchise. And, you know, one of the things that stands out to me, you know, in, in terms of, like, the subtle ways that, uh, Priest has seeded all of this stuff. When we're doing the, the Lazarus contract Titans crossover, like the way that Deathstroke essentially like recruits Kid Flash is by knowing and preying on the fact that Kid Flash is a, is, is a gearhead and like parks this really like bitching car uh, along the path that, that, um, that he knows that young Wally West takes. And like that to me just recalled like, Jason Todd, like, putting the Batmobile up on cinder blocks and trying yeah. to rob it. And, and, like, you can sort of see where, like, Bruce was not trying to manipulate some, some like, hoodlum into being Robin and, like, 
saving him from a life of crime. Whereas Deathstroke is looking at a 15-year-old and being like, I need what this kid has. How can I most effectively exploit him and get him to give it to me in a matter of least resistance, which to Deathstroke looks like mercy. And it's, it's, it's that kind of interpretation of, of like who Deathstroke is in contraposition to Batman that I, I just simply cannot wait to see um, this uh, story develop. I guess the problem for me is like that's also how I see Batman too, more or less. Like I see him yeah. as all as just as manipulative as Destro. Mm-hmm. Like I, I yeah. really you know, I think this is a story that really only works in comic books because if I want to see Batman versus Deathstroke in the movie, I want the lines to be a little bit clearer between them, especially since their Deathstroke's not really established and Batman's only been in one movie and then some hodgepodge or whatever, bitten ass like Batman. I will want to see like a more straight up story and just them like fist fighting a lot, right? But this in this medium of comics, this content, this serial medium where you can tell these long stories, where you can put Deathstroke in this massive context where he's a much more complicated character than any movie supervillain can be in uh, 90 minutes or 150 minutes, whatever, however long these superhero movies are. It's You really can't do this in a film. You can't really capture all these nuances in a film because the audience will be confused because you need a lot of backstory. You need to build this up. You would you'd be asking yourself, okay, why are the why is Batman and Deathstroke just sitting on a dock talking to each other? Like they should just be punching each other. That's what ninety nine percent of the audience would be asking themselves. But in a comic book, you can do that. You can have. these dialogues, you can have these digressions. You uh, in a movie, you wouldn't have that Wintergreen and Alfred scene except for thirty minutes, and it would just be the quips. You know, in the comic book, you can do you can do more sort of this mm-hmm. subtle type of storytelling. Yeah, the way the yeah. issue ends, it makes me like the I know this isn't what's going to happen, but I'm like, is this going to be like a buddy cop movie? It, it, <laughs> that's kind of what I'm rooting for. Are they going to go buddy cop on Talia al Ghul then? Yeah, maybe. League of Assassins. You know, I, I, I can see that being like a, you know, less racist version of a Gunga Din. You're all under arrest. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, I, I'm not usually in the business of speculating, like, what plot points are going to resolve in what way. But I definitely I'm say with full confidence, Full confidence that also don't really care at all. Like Damien is Bruce Wayne's child, um, so like, what are the uh, the pieces of this five issue investigation will come forward? We'll see, but I'm sure that the seeds of those will have been seeded deeply throughout the earlier work. Um, that is really the trademark of what this. I mean, these are just these Byzantine plots that he's been building up, and it's true. I like the idea of being able to see some of his notes coming into them as well. Well, thank you guys for joining. Um, you, we, I should probably wrap up. Is any final thoughts about the series? Let's have it. Um, I would say this series is incredible. If you aren't reading it, you should. You should check out Just the League by Christopher Priest. You should write, read everything you can by Christopher Priest. He's a really special writer who doesn't get the do, who hasn't gotten the due he deserves until now. We've lost ten years of what could have been like some of the greatest comic books that have ever been written 
So uh, go out and support him now so we don't lose out another 10 years, okay? Yeah, I, I agree. His stuff on Justice League is is really good right now, too. And I would say go if you're going back to read his earlier stuff, uh, the Falcon miniseries he wrote when he was uh, still named Jim Owlsley is really, really interesting and totally worth reading that stuff and his early Power Man and Iron Fist stuff, too. Um, mm. he's, he, I, I think that he is probably should get more credit for making Black Panther the character that Black Panther is now, who gets to star in a, the, like the biggest movie ever. Um, I, I don't think that happens if you don't have the nineties run that, that mm-hmm. Priest did. I love the Reginald mm-hmm. Hubland run. I liked the Coates run, but I think he establishes the character as who he is today more than any other writer. Um, and with the another Justice League issues, do you think we can just start reading those from the beginning of Chris Priest taking over the series? Yes, or yes. Oh, yeah. Okay, got it. Um, Spencer? Another thing, I have not gotten around to actually reading it, but my wife read it. Um, in around like 2003 and 2004, um, I think shortly before like Bendis kind of takes over um, the entire Avengers franchise. Priest does a run on a, a Captain America and the Falcon series that's not only super political, like, but is, I think, the first uh, Marvel 616 universe series um, after 9-11 to start really critiquing the politics of never-ending war. Um, I, you know, my wife is a human rights activist, and she's reading this book, and, like, just mentioning me, like, they're at Guantanamo. And, like, just, like, sort of can't believe that, um, particularly for the time in which that book came out, like, it's, it's, a, it's a brave critique. I have not, however, read it, so I can't evaluate it. Um, but, you know, I think that's the sort of thing that um, really underscores again and again what a special writer Priest is, how uncompromising he is, um, how willing he is. Uh, to, to sort of just be ruthlessly unsentimental about the world in which we live while not being uh, bleak in a cheap way. Everything Priest does is earned. Everything Priest presents, he shows you opposing arguments for. Um, he, he, like, takes his own critique um, very seriously, but not to the point where he can't see its own flaws, and there are usually characters that stand in um, for criticisms of that. Um, you know, Wintergreen is, is probably, both Wintergreens, the virtual one and the real one, is probably the one that, you know, does that work in this, in this Deathstroke series. Um, but, yeah, uh, it's a special book. Um, it, you know, is outside probably of um, Garth Ennis's various treatments, most of which I think are terrible. But um, I agree. His treatment his treatments of the Punisher whenever Ennis tells a Punisher Vietnam story. That story is really special because it takes a really, like, incredibly honest and deeply informed and not cheap, um, unflinching view of a futile war and draws a critique out of it that's appropriate and not, like, cheaply overbroad. Everything he does is earned and priest is an, is, is probably a better writer at doing that 
not just at war, but at, you know, society kind of at large. And uh, I, I really hope that um, what we get out of, you know, both what Priest did for Black Panther, now that Black Panther is, is a global cultural phenomenon, what he's doing on Deathstroke and what he's doing on Justice League is a prelude to the rest of the comics industry basically saying, like, take our money, write whatever it is you want to write. Like, you know, I, I will just, whatever, it, you know, I, I got into the Lion Forge universe because, like, that first free comic book day story, like, was very, like, Priest was a co-writer on that. Yeah. Um, and that's a really, like, incredibly, um, you know, promising, um, you know, I, I love, I love Kino, I love Noble. I didn't really get into Superb mm-hmm. so much. Um, the Excel book is great. Like basically like it's, you, you see from all of these different aspects that, that, you know, different, like even random comics that priest touches, he, he enriches and, and makes them really special. And I hope, well, you I know, would he just sort of does whatever he wants next. I would just say that if folks want to learn more about the Lion Forge range, we in fact had Christopher priest as well as the launching, uh, some of the creative, some of the initial editors on the Lion Forge series on the podcast for our 200th episode. And I do recommend folks go and listen to that episode and check it out because the yeah, Lion Forge is pretty amazing. And that debut issue was fabulous. Well, I think with the support from folks on the show, I think we're like this close to making the icon suit as a gravity sheet, the new official catchphrase of the DC universe. And uh, <laughs> perhaps it can be repeated as ad infinazium as, whether or not we are nigh invulnerable when I'm blasting. Because I'm telling you, they could not possibly say the icon suit is a gravity sheet more often than they do in their comics. <laughs> um, I'm aware. I'm aware of that. I've not felt the need to re- read the word sheath quite that often previous to this comic. Um, so I want to thank all of our guests and give you each a second to tell our listeners where they can find you on the Internet. Um, where can folks find you on the Internet and listen to Tighten Up the Defense? Ah, we're available on like any kind of podcatcher type thing, whatever they're calling Apple Music these days or iTunes. Um, and uh, yeah, it's called Tighten Up the Defense, T-I-T-A-N. Uh, we cover both the New Teen Titan series and the Defender series, um, which have pretty much nothing in common other than I like both of them. We take alternate weeks and basically me and my brother have a couple of drinks and talk about a comic and... Uh, we have a lot of fun, and hopefully it's fun to listen to as well. It's hilarious. It is one of the most consistently funny podcasts that are out there, so I just cannot emphasize enough folks listen to it. And you also will like come to realize things that, like, uh, Corey Ander, a.k.a. Starfire, actually Kaiser Sosa her origin story from a takeout menu. <laughs> like, I was like, oh, it all makes sense now. Um, so thank you Leslie Lee where can our folks find your work on the internet yeah so you can follow me at twitter uh, Leslie Lee III and you can listen to my podcast um, Struggle Session you can subscribe at patreon.com slash struggle session we talk about comics books movies games and politics and we talk about how you know Disney Facebook all these companies that are giving us all this content that we love are going to own us soon and destroy our world so um, yeah we're really you know pop uh, pop optimists over there on struggle session <laughs> what's what's the next uh, um, episode you guys have coming out do you know yet uh, yes, we're actually going to be doing a deep dive with um, a Phoenix Kalida, who you can find on Twitter as Uppy Negress. We're talking about uh, 
uh, FOSTA and SESTA, the anti-sex worker uh, bill, was passed almost mm-hmm. unanimous, unanimously by Congress and how it's already putting sex workers across the country in danger. Um, but it's still a very fun and very funny episode, even though it's about a, a very serious topic. I'm really glad you guys are tackling that. It's super dire and not getting enough attention from the world at large. Spencer, where can folks find your work? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Attackerman. Uh, and most days um, I'm reporting for thedailybeast.com. Excellent. And I hope that I won't have any horrible news of war attacks from you in the next day, but you never, you never know. Like we were this no, you probably will. To... You, 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 you uh, almost certainly will. Yeah. Damn it. So, yeah, definitely, guys, follow Spencer on Twitter. Then you will know when the U.S. fails to declare war on Syria but does indeed drop things on it. Um, and shout, shout out to uh, Win Without War as being a really good organization, to, uh, in my opinion, to follow if you're trying to understand what actions we can take to address this bullshit. And um, thank my guest again. This is Graphic Policy Radio. If you came to the episode late, don't worry. You can listen to the whole darn thing by downloading it on iTunes. Um, it's also on SoundCloud and Stitcher. Those will probably be up in about the morning. I'm Ilana Brooklyn. I don't even introduce myself. Well, I'm on Twitter all the goddamn time at E-L-A-N-A underscore Brooklyn. And um, Graphic Policy is at graphicpolicy.com, comics news and views and essays and analysis multiple times a day, including a look at which cheesy movie villains most similar to Scott Pruitt at the EPA today. It was a very thorough evaluation, and I highly endorse reading it. Um, but yes, that's graphic policy. And we'll be back with you on Monday at our usual time, usual, uh, which is 10 o'clock on Mondays, to talk with Jeremy Whitley, who's the author of Raven, the Pirate Princess, which is a delightful, queer, uh, youth-inclusive romance pirate comic book that I really love and that needs more people to buy it so I can continue to read it. Um, and with that in mind, I'll, uh, talk, I'll, I'll have be joining our listeners on Monday and, uh, Thanks again to my guests. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.